Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the glory, the massiveness, the effectiveness of the cross of your Son. And we pray now simply, Lord, that you would come and attend your word once again and bring into our vision more of the glory of your cross so that we would leave here rejoicing and victorious and with a sense of urgency as we witness to neighbors about Jesus and his cross. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by having us listen in to a couple what I find to be rather sobering paragraphs written by Fleming Rutledge. These paragraphs are found on pages 92 and 93 of her recent book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. Rutledge says, Crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It cannot be said too strongly, that was its function. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with subversive ideas that crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators, and were therefore not only expendable, but also deserving of ritualized extermination. Rutledge goes on. Therefore, the mocking and jeering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, they were part of the spectacle and were programmed into it. In a sense, crucifixion was a form of entertainment. Everyone understood that the specific role of the passers-by was to exacerbate the dehumanization and degradation of the person who had thus been designated to be a spectacle. Crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic, and inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. Close quote. Wow. So there's Jesus, his back scourged and bleeding and throbbing with pain. Jesus is carrying the top beam of his cross. And once he arrives at the location... He's suddenly thrown forcefully backward to the ground. Dirt is mixed into his open, agonizing wounds, and now they nail his wrists to the crossbeam. He's then hoisted up, and they attach that top beam to the vertical post, and they nail his feet in. And already Jesus finds it nearly impossible to exhale. Instinctively, he pushes himself up 
to try to catch a breath, but the searing agony in his feet and in his arms is too much to bear. And as he hangs there, there's no escaping the insects and the birds who now converge to feast on his open wounds. There's no escaping the intense thirst that he experiences either. And the mocking and the jeering and the spitting from bystanders that has already started just continues and it gets louder and more pronounced. Now, friends, what I find absolutely stunning is this, that the horror that we have just briefly outlined, this execution of God's Son in 33 A.D., in history, in this world, this event had been planned in the eternal council of the Trinity. It was no accident. It had been planned. It's not like Jesus suddenly found himself in a world of trouble that he didn't expect on the cross. It's not like Jesus ended up in this unanticipated place of crucifixion, surprised himself that it was all happening. No. The cross of Jesus Christ had been planned in the eternal, wise council of the Trinity. And now at Calvary, the plan was carried out. It was fulfilled to the letter according to God's wise design. The one being crucified was in on the plan. Jesus volunteered to be the subject of the plan. Way before Jesus was fastened to the cross, he knew and he expected that this cross was where he would end up. The cross was planned in the eternal council of God. We have texts like Mark 8, 31 and 32, and Mark 9, 31, and Mark 10, 32 through 34, where before the events of the cross ever happened, Jesus tried to teach his stubborn disciples about the necessity of his death and about the certainty of his looming death, and he taught them complete with details of the mocking and the spitting and the flogging that would soon happen. All before any of it happened. Jesus knew what the plan was. He was in on the plan with Father and Spirit and he tried to give the disciples a heads up on the plan. And we have Jesus in the Gospel of John in the days before the cross happened talking often about the approaching hour of his death. Jesus talked a lot about his hour. He said things like this, My hour has not yet come. Or, My time has not yet come. In places like John 2.4 and John 7.6, as if Jesus had this awareness even of the precise timing of his death. And we have the gospel writer John himself chiming in with some narration in certain places of his gospel, like John 7.30, 
and John 8.20, John says that people were prevented from arresting Jesus in the days prior to his Gethsemane arrest because Jesus' hour had not yet come. As if to say the time for Jesus' actual arrest was a specifically determined time that no human being could change, even if he had wanted to. Well, finally, in John 12, 23, very dramatic moment, Jesus announced at last that his hour had come. He knew that the moment of the cross had come. And in John 17, 1, Jesus says in prayer, as he's praying to the Father, he says, the hour has Come, just before he goes to the cross, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus knew that there was this very specific hour of his death, and he had awareness both of when the hour wasn't and an awareness of when the hour was. And watch this, friends. The precise exact moment and circumstance of Jesus' death was within the control of Jesus himself. I want to say that again because we need to see it. The precise exact moment and circumstance of Jesus' death was within the control of Jesus himself. How can I say that? I can say that because of what Jesus says In John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus tells us there, he tells us before the cross ever happens, that he lays down his life, that no one takes his life from him, because he lays it down of his own accord. He says in that passage, listen to what he says, something that you and I can never say, but he can say it. He says, I have authority to lay down my life. And I have authority to take it up again. That's what he says in John 10. As Donald McLeod has put it, no man or devil took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down voluntarily, in effect, assuming to himself the power of death and choosing the time, the place, and the manner in which it would be used against himself. Friends, we need to understand that Jesus was in on the plan, and in some huge measure, he was also in in control of the plan. Matthew 27.50 and John 19.30 are very interesting verses. We're told in those verses that it was Jesus... Jesus, who finally yielded up his spirit or gave up his spirit on the cross, as if Jesus was in full control of the exact moment of his death. McLeod says, the plain import of those texts is that Jesus decided when to stop breathing, He decided. So all this to say, 
the insects and birds nibbling at Jesus' wounds and the nerves touching iron spikes in agony and the inability to exhale and the blood draining and the spitting and the jeering, none of it was by accident. None of it caught Jesus or the Father or the Spirit by surprise. It had all been planned down to the last detail in the eternal counsel of God. The mouth of all the prophets had prophesied way back, they had prophesied, that the Messiah would suffer, according to Acts 3.18. The death of Jesus had been in the eternal wise counsel of Almighty God way, way, way before any of it happened. Jesus was delivered up, according to the Apostle Peter in Acts 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The people in Jerusalem who nailed Jesus to the wood were doing just what God's hand and purpose had predestined to occur, according to Acts 4.28, and yet God holds them accountable for their sin. The cross was planned in the wisdom of God. Now, when I was a kid growing up in Edmonton, I had a magnifying glass. I used to take my magnifying glass over to the ravine that was close to our house where we lived, and I would find long, dry grass, the drier the better, and I'd angle the magnifying glass so that the light of the sun would concentrate down to a blazing point and the grass would light on fire. And then after watching it burn for a moment, uh, I'd stamp it out with my feet. Now, probably not a wise thing to do as a kid, but I'm happy to report that no lives were lost or property destroyed. The point is, with a magnifying glass, you can sort of capture and concentrate the power of the sun in order to start a fire. It's an old camping trick. Well, to borrow an illustration from Charles Spurgeon, if we can compare the wisdom of God to the sun, S-U-N, just for a moment, the place where we find the wisdom of God concentrated and focused and burning brightest in blazing intensity as through a magnifying glass is at the cross, God planned the degrading, humiliating cross in his eternal counsel and carried it out in Jesus. Why? Because he knew that he would be glorified intensely by his wisdom being concentrated there, even as you and I would receive untold benefit. 
Now, friends, the New Testament text that most explicitly links God's wisdom with the cross is the text that was read to us this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. I'd invite you to turn there. We'll have verses on the screen, but there's nothing like having your Bible open in front of you. Just a little bit of context here as we approach this text. One of the more unsavory things that was happening in the church of Corinth, among several unsavory things that were happening there, one of the things that was happening is that the people in the church had become divided into various factions. In a church, really? It's a joke. Divided into various factions, various parties. And each faction or party was claiming a different human leader. Each faction argued that its particular chosen human apostle had the right theology and the best human wisdom. Sounds pretty contemporary, doesn't it? Never follow a man. Well, in verse 10 of this first chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul acknowledges that there is this very problematic division in the church, and Paul calls the church to unity in that verse, verse 10. For Paul, the very fact, the very fact that there were these divisions in the church that were all based on preferred human leaders, this meant that the church had been gravitating to human wisdom and away from divine wisdom. And in the passage we want to focus on, verses 18 through 25, Paul is going to contrast in vivid terms human wisdom versus divine wisdom. Where the subjects of salvation and getting right with God are concerned, the Corinthians needed to reject human wisdom and run to God's revelation. They needed to run toward the wisdom that God had revealed and given. And that wisdom is centered in the cross of Jesus Christ. We begin at verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross, or the preaching of the cross, is folly... To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now notice in this verse that Paul presents us, doesn't he, with the two basic groups of humanity in every age. On one hand, there are those who are perishing. That is, the lost. And on the other hand, there are those who are being saved. That is, those whom God rebirths by his Holy Spirit, those whom God is leading to their final and full salvation. The preaching of the cross is folly to the lost and perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. The power of God. God. Now track with me here as we deepen into a sight 
of God's wisdom at the cross. What I want us to notice is that Paul calls the preaching of the cross the power of God to those being saved. Now, it's long been noted by biblical scholars that in the initial two chapters of 1 Corinthians especially, we have in those chapters repeated allusions to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Paul is drawing on Daniel in a significant way in these opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. So that here in verse 18 of chapter 1, when Paul uses this word power and links the word power to the cross of Jesus Christ, we have to wonder if there's some sort of allusion to the book of Daniel even here. And I think there is. And this was pointed out to me by Greg Beale. In Daniel 2.20, track with me, Daniel 2.20, Daniel praises God and says that power or might belongs to God. And then down in verses 44 and 45 of that same chapter of Daniel, as Daniel is interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel prophesies there that there was a day coming when God would set up a kingdom which would never be destroyed. This would be a kingdom, said Daniel, that would break human kingdoms in pieces. It would be a kingdom that would endure forever. Make a long story short, God sets up the kingdom that Daniel prophesied through the cross of Jesus Christ. The king who is nailed to the cross in weakness is actually on his throne there as king of kings working immense power even as he is defeated. See the wisdom of God? Working immense power even as he dies and is put to death. And this all arose out of the eternal counsel of God. I think what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is he's, he's using Daniel all throughout this section of 1 Corinthians. He's linking power to the cross of Jesus Christ very clearly in verse 18. He's alluding to Daniel's prophecy of God in power setting up an enduring kingdom. As Beale says, the latter-day kingdom of God is officially installed through the Messiah's death. Friends, the wisdom of God is on full, blazing display at the cross, and it is so unlike our wisdom. Again, I quote Greg Beale. He says, at the cross what we have is, the, listen to this, the glorious divine ruler actually exercising ruling power while being defeated. <laughs> this wisdom is so unlike ours. Let's go to verse 19 of our text. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul is quoting Isaiah 29, verse 14 now. He's going to a different prophet. In the book of Isaiah, there are several places where human beings are warned against trying to outwit God. 
We need to be warned about that from time to time. Never try to outwit God. It's a losing cause. So in Isaiah, there's all these texts warning people, don't try to outwit God with your human wisdom. And the, the text that, quote, that Paul quotes here is one of those texts from Isaiah, Isaiah 29, verse 14. Verse 20. Now notice in verse 20, we have a little parade, complete with floats and marching bands, a little parade of the best of human wisdom that could be found in the ancient world that Paul was part of. Okay, he just parades this out now. Verse 19 had just given us the warning, don't try to outwit God. And verse 20 says, where is the one who is wise? The best Greek thinkers of Paul's day were revered for their ingenuity in the field of religion. Where is the wise? Next question, where is the scribe? The Jewish teachers of the law and the rabbis were revered by many for their knowledge of the Hebrew Bible. Where is the debater of this age? In the ancient world, there were philosophers who were highly respected. But all of these people, we need to understand, were human beings trying to reason up to God in one way or another. They were denying or in some cases ignoring the full revelation that God had given. As verse 20 ends, Paul says, has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Friends, the best of human ingenuity, as it tries to reason its way up to God and press God into a human system of thought, That system of thought and those philosophers and those debaters would never have dreamed that God's kingdom would be set up in a crucified, bleeding Messiah who ruled and exercised power to save even as he hung dying. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, now notice that phrase, in the wisdom of God. Think about this very carefully with me. We're talking now about God's wisdom, okay? Now in the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is the wisdom that planned the cross in eternity, as we talked about earlier. God's wisdom, get this, if if you can wrap your mind around this, God's wisdom is infinite in nature. Psalm 147.5 says that God's understanding is beyond measure. Okay? Wrap your mind around that. God's understanding is beyond measure. God's wisdom is described very beautifully, I think, by A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He's got a whole chapter on God's wisdom. Tozer says this, God's wisdom, among other things, is able, listen to this, is able to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. 
God's wisdom sees the end from the beginning. So there can be no need to guess or conjecture. God's wisdom, says Tozer, sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. Back to our verse. For in the wisdom of God, now notice what Paul says next, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now notice very carefully that in this first section of verse 21, Paul names for us the two polar opposite versions of wisdom, doesn't he? There is the wisdom of God on one hand, and then there is the world's wisdom on the other hand. We've talked very briefly, and I would say quite inadequately, about the wisdom of God. But what is the world's wisdom that Paul talks about here? Now, we need to be very careful as we look at this verse. In the context of the verse, listen carefully, Paul is not saying that all human knowledge and wisdom concerning a range of topics such as medicine and math and physics and music and business, he's not saying that all that knowledge is worthy of contempt. No. Notice carefully that there's a very specific kind of human wisdom that Paul is calling into question, and that is knowing God from within the confines of human wisdom. Notice this. Paul is talking specifically about religious wisdom in this context. He says that the world did not know God by its own wits, by its own fallen human wisdom, So knowledge of God is the issue here. Now listen, friends, a fallen person who is working on his or her own will never discover God on his or her own. They will never discover God under their own steam without God's revelation and God's power being at work. If a person claims to have found God by their own wisdom alone, what they mean, ten times out of ten what they mean is that they have constructed a false God who is based on their own wishes and their own boxes and their own desires. A small g God who is really no more than a projection of their own image. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It's not possible to know God by human ingenuity alone. And then Paul says, listen to what he says next. It pleased God. God took pleasure. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. To save those who believe. Now, friends, don't let anyone ever tell you that preaching is unimportant. 
Don't let anyone ever suggest to their pastor that he really ought to spend less time in preaching and prepping to preach. Spend less time in that and more time on other peripheral stuff. According to this verse, and if we're going to take the word of God seriously, let's take it seriously. According to this verse, it's through the folly of, of preaching, I know what Paul's talking about. The folly of preaching, it's through that that God does his mighty saving work. It's through the folly of preaching that God brings people to know him because those people can't know God by their own wisdom. Preaching is the primary role of the pastor because preaching is where the word of the cross goes forth and the word of the cross is the thing that has the power to raise dead sinners to life and bring them to know God. I'm talking as a guy who was saved under preaching. Verse 22 For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, again, in the context, Paul is still addressing the question, how is God known? Is God known through human wisdom or is God known in some other way? For the Jew of Paul's day, God would be known if and when God provided powerful signs. If you claim to be divine, or if you claim to be the Messiah, said the Jew of Paul's day, you better legitimate your claim by providing us with some miracles, by providing us with some signs. After all, didn't God in the days of old work powerful signs at the Exodus? The signs at the Exodus, like the plagues and like the splitting of the Red Sea, were a massive means of delivering the people. And now here we are, stuck under the thumb of Rome, said the Jews of Paul's day. If you claim to be Messiah, we want you to prove it by displaying some wonder-working signs so that we know you're the one who will deliver us from Roman occupation. And so in many places of the Gospels, the Jews, we find them asking Jesus to show them a sign. Give us a sign. Jesus, you must fit into our box. You must accommodate our conception of the Messiah. We have God all figured out in our wisdom. See what's happening there? So Jesus, show us a sign. Now Paul says also in our verse, Greeks seek wisdom. How is God known? The person who's steeped in Greek culture and philosophy said, God is known through learning, through reasoning, through philosophizing. The problem with that, as Gordon Fee has pointed out, was that for the Greek-influenced person who sought wisdom, God had to fit in the confines of what we conceive as reasonable. (laughs) Right? Isn't this contemporary? God had to make sense according to the systems of human wisdom that we have determined. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. Did you know that God is a consuming fire? He's not a controlled burn. He's a consuming fire. He blows where he wants to. He's not subject to our human wisdom or limitations. He's God all by himself, and he will surprise us and sometimes shock us and work outside of our systems. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Gordon Fee summarizes it this way. He says, these two idolatries mentioned here in verse 22 are the two basic idolatries and they are ever with us. The demand for power and the insistence on wisdom always for us and from our point of view, these are still the basic idolatries of the human fallen world. Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now don't let the shock of this text pass you by. Christ Crucified. That has been our subject over these past ten weeks. Christ crucified. That phrase, Christ crucified, we need to understand, is a five-alarm contradiction to human wisdom in just two words. Don Carson has suggested that we ought to understand this phrase, Christ crucified, in the same way we understand a phrase like frozen steam or upward decline. The two words together like this, Christ crucified, is a complete oxymoron, a complete unworkable contradiction to our human wisdom. Because you see, Christ, the first part of the phrase, Christ, or Messiah, was the one who was going to come in splendorific, mighty, power to conquer and win and be the victor and triumph 100%. To have Christ crucified was an unworkable contradiction because crucified meant defeated, it meant weak, it meant humiliated. How could crucified in weak humiliation ever square with Messiah who was to come victorious with uncontested power? How could this be? This whole bizarre idea of Christ crucified was a stumbling block to Jews, says Paul. Why? Why was it a stumbling block to Jews? Well, because every Jewish person knew Deuteronomy 21:23. If you hung on a tree, you were under God's curse. And they said, no Messiah of ours will ever be under God's curse hanging on a tree. Christ crucified was a stumbling block to Jews. And Christ crucified was folly to Gentiles, says Paul. The unbelieving Gentile would look at the cross and he or she would say, 
Oh, oh yeah, that, that, uh, that Jewish criminal that was nailed onto a cross, that, that one that was humiliated in abject derision outside the gates of Jerusalem, the, the one who was bleeding to death with the other refuse of society, he's your Messiah? Are you mad? Now, friends, this is so contemporary. In our day, outspoken unbelievers, outspoken unbelievers like Sam Harris continue to see the cross of Jesus as utter folly. And Harris sees those who trust in a crucified Christ as insane. Let me read you a quote from Sam Harris. He says, Now listen carefully to the language he uses here. He says, viewed in a modern context. Did you hear that? Viewed in a modern context, which itself is an indicator that Harris prizes a so-called modern, enlightened human wisdom. We're, We're so much smarter than the ancients. Arrogance. Viewed in a modern context, he says, the notion that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that his death constitutes a successful propitiation of a loving God, and he's got loving in quotation marks, is an idea at once so depraved and fantastical that it is hard to know where to begin to criticize it. Harris sees the cross as folly. Now, let me tell you, he won't see it that way when he dies, but he does now. Harris is a contemporary example, and, and very popular with some people. He, he's a contemporary example of, a, of the Gentile in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, who sees the crucified Christ as madness. And that's basically what the word means that Paul uses here, folly. could be better translated as madness, insanity. The crucified Christ does not fit into Sam Harris's fallen human scheme of so-called wisdom. I don't know about you, but I'll take the Apostle Paul over Sam Harris seven days a week. We preach at Snowden Baptist, Christ crucified. May the church always and forever preach Christ crucified. Why? Because Christ Christ crucified is God's wisdom on blazing bright display as through a magnifying glass. Christ crucified is the eternal plan of the all-wise trinity that was no accident when it came to pass. Instead, it was the glory of God for the salvation of sinners like you and I. Let's go to verse 24. To those who are called, so to those God calls out of spiritual darkness, calls out of deadness into life, out of darkness into light, to those God enlivens by his spirit, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom 
of God. The Jews wanted power in signs being performed. The Greeks wanted wisdom. Paul says here, both the power and the wisdom of God are to be found in the crucified Jesus Christ. The power, the wisdom of God are extended to people everywhere in the weak, bleeding, crucified King Jesus. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross is where the wisdom of God is on full display. Friends, you and I were not consulted, thank God, when God decided in eternity in his wisdom that his Messiah would bleed and die on a cross. Our human wisdom was not drawn into the conversation when God crafted his astounding plan, listen, to have his justice and his mercy mercy join up and kiss at the cross. God did not ask any of us what our thoughts were about the wise design that he had where, listen, simultaneously, simultaneously through his bleeding, dying, forsaken son, in one stroke, the defeat of evil powers and the reconciliation of God's enemies and the justification of the guilty and the redemption of slaves, and the forgiveness of sins, and the aversion of God's wrath away from rebels, and the overturning of human wisdom, and the glorification of God's wisdom, all of that would be accomplished in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. God did not get in touch with us thank God, when he decided in his wisdom to have divine love triumph over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. To use the words of John Stott. Don't you love that? The cross is where divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. The cross is where the wisdom of God is concentrated as though the sun were focused through a magnifying glass. Now listen as we close to the summary of our whole sermon series. This was written about 1,600 years ago by the Archbishop of Constantinople, Chrysostom. Chrysostom was known as the golden mouth preacher, the golden mouth. Chrysostom said this. This is so rich. He said, the cross destroyed the enmity of God towards man, brought about the reconciliation, made the earth heaven, associated men with angels, pulled down the citadel of death, unstrung the force of the devil, extinguished the power of sin, delivered the world from error, brought back the truth, expelled the demons, destroyed temples, overturned altars, suppressed the sacrificial offering, implanted virtue, founded the churches. Glory to God. 
glory to God. As we end this sermon series on the cross, I want to ask you, friend, if you would approach me after this service, if today, for the first time, you have found yourself drawn like a magnet to the crucified Jesus Christ. If you've seen for the first time this morning the bankruptcy of trying to come to God by any other way than the crucified Jesus. If you've seen the bankruptcy, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you and help you in whatever way that I can. For now, friends, may your boast and my boast be ever and always in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise and thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ being willing and volunteering to go as our substitute and die the death that we all deserved. We praise you for all of the benefit and effect that was wrought and worked out at the cross. We thank you for your glory, God, that you have shown just little slivers of to us Uh, over the past 10 weeks as we have deepened and meditated on the cross. And we pray that as people who live a cruciform life, as people of the cross, that we would go out with a perhaps enhanced theology of the cross and live it out, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Help us, Lord. Enable us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.